I was reading this book. I've, I've referenced it. It's um, the story of this couple that went over to Tibet to, to take the gospel there. They're missionaries. And um, good morning. Um, and it's a cool story. They spent about 10 years out in the mountainous region, no written language. And so they learned the language and it took them about, I think, around 10 years, 12 years to learn the language, get in the written form and get just the first New Testament. And uh, they end up leading one guy to the Lord and about six other people to the Lord. And then they had to go back home stateside. I shared that story. And, and I, there's another story here. There's a guy named Cammie. And um, he's grown up. He grew up in, the, he's one of the cliff dwellings. If you ever saw the pictures of people who dwell in the cliff, cliff dwell, this is one of those guys. Um, cliff dweller, I guess. And um, he grew up in a family that practiced sorcery. His, his grandfather was a shaman. His dad was a shaman. And he was on the path towards being a shaman. And he talked about having these dreams. In fact, there was one dream he had all the time. And it was, he said, in his words, it was this great serpent that said, follow me and I'll give you everything you'll ever need. And he would always have this dream over and over and over again. And then somewhere in his life, a new dream came. And the new dream was of this house of light up on the top of a mountain. And that's all it was, was this house of light, very drawing, like, like a house of light you wanted to be in. And he would have these two dreams all the time. And then he found out about this thing going on over at this nearby village. I mean, it was close to them, so he knew that couple from America, or these white people out in the middle of, you know, where no other white people were. And so he knew the story that they were over there. And then he, he heard about this house that they would meet in. Well, it was that guy, Hasta Ram, the first Tibetan to come to know Christ. It was his house they met in. And uh, he'd heard about it, and he said, you know, whose house is this? And they would say, well, that's God's house. And as it were, he finally had this moment where he just felt like he'd had that dream about the serpent saying, come follow me. And he heard, saw that house, and he saw the people there, and there was something different. So he actually just showed up one day. It was one night when Hastaram was, was preaching. Just out of the blue, just came and walks in, and the message this guy was giving was on Genesis chapter 3. So if you know Genesis chapter 3, that's, if you're newer to the Bible or, or Christianity, that's the very first book of the Bible, and that's the third chapter, so it's right there at the beginning, and it's about the serpent who tempts Adam and Eve to rebel against God and go their own way. And the guy's sitting there, and he's, he's doing the math, and he said, for the first time, I understood who the great serpent was in my dream all these years. And in his own words, he said, it was in that service, or services, that meeting, whatever, in that house, he dedicated himself to following God with the goal of living in that house of light that he'd always been dreaming of. And it was following, immediately following that decision that he broke the laws of his country, that he completely went the opposite direction, denied his family tradition, set aside all the shamanism, 
and chose to follow Christ, and he got baptized. And he broke the law. As soon as he baptized, got baptized, he broke the law. This all happened. Now it was over a course of a life, but he made that decision to follow Christ and forever dedicate himself to seeing or to, to getting to that point where he's in that house of light. And it's a, powerful, it's a powerful story of what compels someone to follow Christ and then be baptized who doesn't have any history with Christianity, and it's Christ. There's something about Christ, and there's something that, that happens, and we sing this song, and you're going to hear stories of this. But it was believe and baptize for this man. Believe and baptize, and he just is like, i got to do this. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about last week and this week will be the two weeks. Um, last week, we talked about communion. We're talking about this word ordinances. What has God said? Church, I want you to do this and don't ever stop doing this. And there's two biggies. There's baptism and there's communion. And last week, we talked about communion. And communion is this word that they use. They, they would actually say the word relationship. So when we have Communion Sunday, we're really having Relationship Sunday. That would be our kind of normal language. It's Relationship Sunday. And what's Relationship Sunday? Well, we celebrate, we have a relationship with them, and, and we continually remember the cost of that, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. Today is, is Baptism Sunday, and, and we're going to talk about what baptism is. And, and baptism, if you read through the Old Testament, there's several passages that talk about this in Leviticus and Numbers and Exodus, where these, these moments where God, this is A.D. What, or B.C., 1300 B.C., right? And God comes to him and says, hey, look, I want you to follow me, and this is how you follow me. And one of the things was, if they did something that broke one of God's laws, or if they touched something or, or whatever, they had to go through a purification rites. And sometimes it was actually going into this pool of water, going underneath the water, and then coming back out. And it wasn't about wash yourself with soap. It was about the water was a symbol of purification, and so you had to go under the water and then come back out. And you find that in all these chapters here. So there's this context of water being a symbol for purification, water being a symbol for something. Fast forward about, I don't know, 800 years to around 550 B.C., temples destroyed, and, and they don't have that sacred place necessarily. And, and what starts to happen is this tradition. If somebody wants to start following God, Yahweh, they started this tradition, well, you have to go through purification, and so you would go, guess what, under the water. You go under the water, and you come back out, and it wasn't that the water cleaned you. It was the symbol of purification. So anyone that followed Yahweh had to do that. Fast forward then another about 550 years, right? To Jesus has been born, so he's now around 30 years old, and this guy, John the Baptist, comes on the scene. He says, hey, the prophecies are about to be fulfilled. The Messiah is here. The kingdom of God is coming. Baptize. Get baptized. Repent. And, and that, in that moment, it was in the Jordan River. There wasn't some holy tub somewhere. It was just, dude, you want more of God, you want spiritual revival, then just show it by going into the water, immersion and coming out. Let the water be the symbol. And in the middle of this, Jesus comes and Jesus says to John, hey, you got to baptize me. And John's like, I, I'm not baptizing you. You're God. You're the Messiah. You, you need to baptize me. And Jesus said, no, no. So Jesus didn't get baptized because he'd sinned. It wasn't about purification. Jesus 
went through baptism to identify that he is the Messiah and he is bringing the kingdom of God here and it's obedience to the plan of God, the Father. And then Jesus says something at the end of his life, towards the end of his life, and he says this twice. And it's up on the screen. Once is in Matthew, and he says this. To anybody who's going to follow Jesus, he says, Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says it again, or it's repeated again over in Mark, where he says, Whoever believes and is baptized is saved. He says this, and then what happens is there's one book that's really a history book about the beginning of the church. It's called Acts. And in Acts, you see over and over again that they actually take Jesus seriously. Like, baptism becomes a real thing in the history of the church. And what we're going to do is we're going to read through, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2, or Acts chapter, yeah, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 8, well, if you want to get ahead, if you're flipping to it on your phone, you may have to wait, and Acts chapter 16. But Acts chapter 2. And we're just going to take some time to just read this passage of Scripture, or these several passages that describe these early days of the church. Acts chapter 2, this is ground zero, day one, the church is born, the Holy Spirit comes, Peter starts to explain to all these people, hey, this is what's going on. These people, we, we follow the way of Jesus and have now been filled with the Holy Spirit and have this power. And he goes on to talk about this Jesus that you all just killed, the Messiah, right? And in fulfillment of prophecy. And he's risen from the dead and he's offering salvation to anybody who believes. And, and this is a, their response in verse 37 of chapter 2. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God, our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Jump over to Acts chapter 8. Persecution has hit the church. Christians are scattering. And we pick up with kind of that context here in verse Four of chapter 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. There was so much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great, and they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is, a power, is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued 
with Philip. I love that story. I mean, you got a guy that's doing sorcery, and it's just like what just happened 40 years ago in Tibet. Like, it's still happening. The power of God, the salvation of God is greater than any other power. Over in Acts chapter 16, there's one final story. And this is a story of Lydia, a woman who is a wealthy businesswoman. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and after she was baptized in her household as well, and she goes on to invite them in to stay with them. You know, one of the things that's interesting about this, these stories, I love reading them. All three of these, different contexts, different stories. But what's interesting is the immediacy of belief and baptism. Belief and baptism. They believed and they were baptized. They believed and they were baptized. And it's really, I, I, like, I like it, reading it, like, wow, belief, baptized. But it creates, it's created some problems within the church because the immediacy of it, what happens is people begin to think, oh, to be saved means you have to believe plus you have to be baptized. And that's a real problem because if you read through Romans, and we just got done with Romans, we spent 20 years in Romans. Um, so if you read through Romans chapter 3, you get to Romans 3, it says it so clearly. It is by grace through faith that we are justified. By grace through faith. And then he goes in, Paul goes into Romans 4, and he tackles the one thing that every Israelite points to to say, oh, no, look, if we do this, we get into heaven. And he takes circumcision. He goes to the father of Israel, Abraham, and he takes circumcision away and says, no, that's not what saves him. It's faith. And he talks about it in Romans 5, and he talks about it in Romans 6, and it goes all the way through 10. He really hammers it. And through 12, it's just this whole thing. It's only by faith. There's nothing else. And then Ephesians, Galatians, he also comes out and says, there's no work, there's no action, activity you and I can do to somehow save us. And he says, why are you even going back to that stuff? And then Ephesians, he says it again, he tackles it again, and he writes this famous verse. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, actions, so that no one may boast. Proximity does not equate to what it takes to be saved. So baptism comes right after believing in Jesus, but it is not what saves someone. Scripture is just so clear on that. And so some of you may say, well, well why don't we just like somebody gets saved and baptize them? Yeah, sometimes we do that. But oftentimes, we wait a couple months. One, it's organizationally, because we want to have everybody kind of hear the story, because these Sundays are just awesome. Um, but the other piece of it is, you ever heard, you, you, we use that word folk, folklore, right? You know, we all know what folklore is, right? So Johnny Appleseed. Well, we kind of know he was a real guy, but then folklore builds the story to something beyond that. Davy Crockett, right? St. Nicholas, 
right? These are real people. Folklore expands, extrapolates, and, and pretty soon you have a story that doesn't even represent what their real story was like. Well, just like folklore is in our culture, folk theology is in our culture. We're a culture that, how many people say they grew up, you know, going to church or just, I'm a Christian because I'm American, right? I mean, one of the shocking things was when we were in Africa to be in Islamic nations and have people say they're Muslim, but they don't do anything about it. I'm like, oh, you're just like Americans. <laughs> Muslim by culture. Christians by culture. And, and so what happens, the reason we delay is we want a couple months. It doesn't take 20 years. But we want a conversation to say, well, what, what are you coming out of and what do you really believe? Is, is it scripture? Is it really what Christ teaches or is it folk theology? And we just think that's important because we don't want somebody to get started on the wrong track and to go off a direction. So it's just a conversation. It's nothing crazy. We're not talking about 20 weeks of theology and, you know, then you've got to get a certificate and then you've got to... It's, it's just a simple conversation of understanding that. And what baptism is, when you, when you look at this, I, lo I love when you start to read these stories. And that's why I wanted to spend some time reading it. These stories, I love the phrases in each one. Each one was a unique experience, but very similar in this. In Acts 2, the people were cut to the heart. In Acts 8, people were being healed. People were being delivered. Joy filled the city. I mean, joy, it doesn't say joy filled just the people who love Jesus. It says joy filled the city. And I love Acts 16 where it says, God opened Lydia's heart to understand this thing. And, and that's the common theme in, in all of this is God is on the move. When people are being baptized, God's on the move. That's what the story is. God's on the move and they're so moved by God that what do they do? They say, I believe in you. I want to follow you. I don't want to let people know about it. Napoleon, he once wrote about this idea of motivation and the difference between clout and power and love and kindness. And he said this. He says, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. I would die for Christ, not because he threatens me, but because he loves me. I love that. It's not raw power, it's not coercion, it's love. That's what this is based on, love. It's a, it's a deeper motivation, and it's the realization, anyone who, who gets baptized, it's that realization that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. He loves me. He loves me. And in baptism, a couple things happen. We publicly identify with Jesus. Let me talk about identify. 
identify in, in a couple things. It's a declaration as we're identifying with them. One is we're saying we believe this about Jesus Christ, that he is the Savior of the Lord, that when he died on the cross, he died for me. He took on my sins, and he took on the penalty of my sins. His body, his blood for me. And he was buried, and then he was resurrected three times. And so when we say we, we are getting baptized and we go into the water, we are saying and declaring we believe that this is true. Like it's really true. So it's a declaration. It's an identification because we're saying he died for me. So when Christ died, I died with him. When he was buried, I died, or I was buried with him and he was raised to new life. I was raised to new life. So my old flesh, my old person died with him, was crucified, and I'm raised and I have this new identity, this new life. And he starts to call me. Now I have new names. I have a new identity. I'm a son or a daughter of Christ. I'm, I'm part of the kingdom of God. And when someone gets baptized, they're saying, that identification, that was me. I really was that bad off. I really was that desperate. I really did need to be saved. Couldn't work my way out of it. It's a public thing. And this is the piece where, where people are always historically throughout the practice of the church. And you read this in Acts. They were always getting baptized with others. You didn't do this on your own. You did it with others. And there's a public declaration. Jesus says this. He says, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Baptism is one of the first moments that someone who follows Christ says publicly, I believe and Jesus, he's my Savior, and he's my Lord. It's a powerful moment because of what's going on there is, is Jesus and the Father are up in heaven, and Jesus is going, that's ours. That's our kid. That's our kid. That's my son. That's my daughter. You ever had those moments, parents, at a performance? Uh, I don't know, whatever it is, sports, life, something happens in a public setting where your, your kid just nails it and everybody goes, hey. And you take credit for it because it's like, apparently you did it. Like, right, you know that moment? That's, that's this, only it, it's, it's way bigger. You're talking about God the Father and the Son saying, that's my child. Oh, I love him. Oh, I love her. So that's what we're going to do. Some people are going to get baptized here, and um, they're, they're just going to say, I love Jesus. He's the best. He's like the best ever. Jesus is awesome. I want to follow him. I love him. And obedience comes out of that love. That, that, that's what happens. That, that's why baptism is so close to that moment of profession. Why? Because you love him. What, what do you want? Get baptized. I'm in. Like, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you get baptized? Are you kidding me? 
love them. And so you're going to hear some great stories today. And, and what we do here at our church uh, is um, we, we cheer, right? We celebrate. So they're going to say this, and we're going to celebrate. And, and there's a part of this, we're cheering them on. Like, they need to hear this. And, but the other part of this I've really come to understand is, you know, when I'm yelling and screaming and whistling, there's another part that it's me and Jesus. Like, it's still that moment. I'm still, I'm still in that moment where I'm realizing, you're still doing this for me. You're still the best. After all these, you're still the best. And so the cheer, is it for Jesus? Is it for them? Yes, it is. Do it for him. Cheer him on. So I invite uh, AJ.